Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a daily program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. We're working our way through the two-year version of the RMM Scripture Reading Plan, and I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Psalm 64. I mentioned earlier that most of the biographical descriptions are found in what scholars often call the Second Davidic Collection, running from Psalm 51 through Psalm 72. The two Psalms we're reading today, which come from that collection, do not have biographical ascriptions. So what do we do with those? My approach generally is to avoid trying too hard to identify the likely biographical context unless there are obvious clues in the words of the text. If the text says something that makes it clear to which events a psalm refers, then by all means, make mention of it. But if it doesn't, and neither of these psalms has a lot of that, then I think it best to simply use them in a more universal way. Psalm 64 emerges transparently out of a time of dreadful tumult and the life of David. And therefore, it would be a good psalm for you to use whenever you are facing severe difficulties, whenever you're attempting to steer your way through the pits and snares that have been laid for you by your enemies. This is a psalm of complaint, wherein David lists and lifts his many troubles up to the Lord. Tim Keller says here, God is the ultimate complaint department. He invites us to pour out our frustrations to him so he can act for us, closed quote. I think that is true and usefully said. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life From dread of the enemy, hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. Now, this word blameless here means pious, upright, or innocent. And this may incline us to think of this psalm as belonging to the time of David's troubles with Saul as compared to his troubles with Absalom. David was not entirely blameless with respect to Absalom's rebellions, but he was blameless with respect to Saul. Saul himself admits that in 1 Samuel 26, 21. So perhaps it is appropriate for us to think of this song as generally belonging to the time of David's completely innocent suffering under the reign of Saul. Again, this reminds me of Calvin's counsel about praying these prayers of David. He says, In asking the divine protection, it is indispensably prerequisite. We should be convinced of the goodness of our cause, as it would argue the greatest profanity in any to expect that God should patronize iniquity. This psalm is a complaint to God from the midst of innocent suffering. Now, of course, other than the suffering endured by Jesus, there are no entirely innocent sufferers in the Bible. Not even Job was entirely innocent, and he never claimed to be such. The innocence we're speaking of here simply relates to the specific challenges that are being faced. 
David is an innocent sufferer here in the sense that snares and pits have been laid unjustly against him. So Calvin is simply saying, before you take this psalm upon your lips, evaluate your own heart and consider carefully why it is that people are opposing you. David was an innocent sufferer here and was being subject to unjust persecution. If you find yourself in a similar place, this psalm will help you greatly. However, if you're like most people in the West and you have little to no occasion for personally praying this prayer, you can pray this prayer on behalf of your persecuted brothers and sisters overseas. Pray this for the Christians in North Korea. Pray it for the Christians hiding underground in Iran. Pray it for the brothers and sisters in China. This psalm fits their situation perfectly. David goes on to describe how committed these people, these enemies, are to their wicked and evil plans. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, we have accomplished a diligent search for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. It is distressing to think about how creative people can be in seeking the destruction of innocent life. We think of the Nazi gas chambers and the killing fields in Cambodia. It has ever been thus. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, and he has always employed willing human helpers. Verse 7. But God shoots his arrow at them. They are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their tongues turned against them. All who see them will wag their heads. Then all mankind fears. They tell what God has brought about and ponder what he has done. The sudden collapse of evil regimes is part of how God communicates his judgment to the world. We think of ancient examples like the collapse and destruction of Assyria, once the greatest empire in the world, and then suddenly nothing but a heap of ash and rubble. We think of the collapse of Nazi Germany and then a generation later of the USSR. We live in a world of sowing and reaping. If you don't believe that, just go on YouTube and type in people doing stupid things and then watch the inevitable results. This world has been wired by God to reward righteousness and wisdom and to punish wickedness and evil. Sometimes the feedback is delayed, but Wait for it and you will surely see it. It will come naturally in time or it will come supernaturally in time or it will come at the final judgment. But one thing is certain, nobody gets away with anything. As Hagar said way back in Genesis 16, 13, God is the God who sees. Knowing that, as David did, changes how you live and how you pray in difficult times. Verse 10. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exult. You do live in a righteous universe, and things will work out in the end. Therefore, 
Let the righteous rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Thanks be to God. The RMM plan has us reading two Psalms today, so we'll also take a look at Psalm 65. The ascription here is very brief. It reads as follows, To the choir master, a psalm of David. A song. We can't say for sure, then, what originally occasioned this psalm, but based on the content, we can safely assume that it was composed for use during some sort of agricultural festival. Derek Kidner says here, whatever event or season it first celebrated, its grateful delight in God as Redeemer, Creator, and Provider makes it a rich and many-sided act of praise, not merely a psalm for a harvest festival. I think that is well said. This psalm would be perfect for a harvest festival, but it is not merely intended for that. It would also serve a believer well anytime he or she wanted to reflect upon God's goodness, power, and provision. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. I love what Plumer says here. Surely this points to the calling of the Gentiles, for the Jewish people are never in Scripture once called all flesh. Closed quote. The Old Testament often spoke of the nations being called and included into the worship of the one true God. The fullest expression of that probably is given in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, where it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. In the book of Revelation in the New Testament, John is given a vision of the gathering people of God in the heavenly places. He says, Revelation 7, 9 to 10, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The Bible is not promising a universal salvation here in terms of all people without exception, but it is promising a wide and deep and inclusive salvation embracing all people without distinction. There will be men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, and nation within the bands of the covenant community and offering praise to the Lord before the completion of his purpose on the earth. Thanks be to God. Verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of of your house, the holiness of your temple. Let me attempt a very loose contemporary translation here. David is saying that it is sin that would prevent me from enjoying your presence, O Lord, but you have dealt marvelously with that. Now I am welcomed in. 
Now all barriers have been removed. Blessed is the one that you choose and save and usher in. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. Everything about that temple, in terms of its layout and structure, its architecture, everything about the temple as we think of it from the Bible times, was intended to communicate the central problem of the Old Testament. The central problem of the Old Testament is that God is holy and we are not. That's a huge problem because God's not going to change. He's not going to lower the bar, right? He is who he is. And so obviously we're the ones that have to change. But how can we do that, right? We're the ones with the problem. We need to get rid of the sin that we have and we need some help so that we don't keep sinning in the future. And so arouse afresh the the righteous wrath of God. That's the problem in the Old Testament. That's the crisis around which the narrative is built. And, And that's the problem that the Old Testament intended to remind us of at every turn. And that's the problem that the architecture of the temple was intended to highlight. All working together to make the point. It is hard to live with a holy God. But if you can... There is no life like it. And that's what David is talking about here. He's, he's, he understands his sin would have, should have exiled him forever, pushed him away. But in God's mercy, he's been brought back inside. He has been covered. His sins have been covered and washed away and forgiven. And David is welcomed home. That is something to sing about in the Old Testament. How much more in the new? The whole thrust of the New Testament is that because of the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross, we actually have a a better access, a more intimate and familial access to God than David could ever have dreamed of. At the moment Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The, The curtain, which was, again, part of the architecture of the temple in Bible times, communicated the distance that existed between the sinner and their holy God. That curtain, we're told in Mark 15, 38, was torn in two the moment Jesus died. Which is to say, a level of intimacy is now available beyond even that which was celebrated by David in this psalm. See, that's the high water note in the New Testament. In in Hebrews 10, for example, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. Are you hearing all that language? Right? Through the curtain, comma, that is, comma, through his flesh. That's what it says in Hebrews 10, 20. So the, the apostles making sure we don't miss it that there's this special intimacy now if we enter through the blood. Verse 21, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When I was a little boy, one of my earliest memories of my grandparents' house is that, and I, you know, always foggy memories when you're remembering back to when you're four or five years old, but my grandparents' house, one of the the rooms 
had a, a curtain that was made, this is in the 70s, but made with those hangy, stringy beads. I don't know if you remember those, but that always looked like a moving waterfall. And now, you know, for whatever reason, I can't hear that passage, but think of that, like entering into the intimate presence of God, the inner chamber through this curtain, this waterfall-looking thing that is the blood of Christ. If you enter through that, if you are cleansed and purified by that, then you are welcomed in as a son, as a daughter, as a loved and cherished one. That's what the apostle is talking about. That's the high water note of praise in the New Testament. Therefore, however excited David is about his generous access, how much more excited ought we to be? We have total unlimited access. This psalm ought to serve, therefore, to get us started in our praise. But as Christians, we can and should go beyond it. Verse 5 goes on to say, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. These verses celebrate God as Lord of nature and Lord of all mankind. He is the God who is there, the God who speaks, and the God who watches and moves over all. Verse 9. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. So God is also, according to these verses, the God of plenty. God didn't make the world merely sufficient. He made it beautiful, abundant, and lush. He is an overflow God, a generous God, a kind God, and good. Even under the burden of sin, even groaning under the curse, even while waiting for release and redemption, this is a pretty marvelous planet that we've been given. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope that you do. We have a growing community of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.